0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I am so happy to be talking to you this week. So much is happening all over the world, uh, as always, actually, but so much is happening now. And I wanted to mention that uh, I noticed there were a lot of listeners this past week in Russia and Poland. And again, as always, be in touch. Let me know what speaks to you in those parts of the world. That's very meaningful to me because of my family history in that region from Ukraine and Belarus and Russia and Poland and all my my, uh, ancestors a few generations back from there. And so this is very nice, very lovely For me, and so please be in touch. And for today, we have Sue Winter. She is an impressive woman. She is a modern linguist who holds two graduate degrees one from the University of London and another from UWE Bristol. She taught for over 44 years in a variety of settings in both mainstream and specialist teams for vulnerable young people. Sue has multiple cultic experiences from religious to corporate to interpersonal, including both parental and spousal abuse. She became involved in Fruitful Vine Ministries, an Australian charismatic group led by a female apostle prophet. After leaving that group, she unknowingly, quote-unquote, cult-hopped, volunteering for a UK-based commercial hiking company, which she only recently realized was employing many cult-like practices. She is now an ESOL examiner and a group leader for a US nonprofit organization. She has a passion for language and speaks French, Spanish, German, Catalan, and Arabic. Today, though, she'll be speaking English with me, and I'm so happy to have you hear her. Here is Sue now. I am so happy to be able to talk to Sue Winter today. I think this is a conversation that I have been looking forward to ever since we discussed the idea of having you come on and tell your story because it has such a Depth to it. And there's so much insight, I think, for people learning about how one part of your life might impact the next or might make you more vulnerable or more desensitized to certain kinds of behaviors and treatment, etc., and how it can be this confluence of circumstances that lead people to where they are in their lives. But I think also, you know, I want to make sure to spend some time to talk about your healing process and the insights that you've had since then so there's a lot there's a lot to cover i would love you just to spend a moment introducing yourself and and also talking about what else you do besides talking about your cult experiences
1: i'm sue winter and i am a 67 year old multiple cult hopper that's my title I am British, as you can hear from my accent. Um, I'm originally from London, but I now live in the southwest of England. Uh, the nearest city is Bristol. But I've lived also abroad for 17 years in several different nations, including the United States, um, which uh, I'll talk a bit about. So, gosh, uh, multi experiences, they are one-on-one. And I didn't realize that until I started listening to some of your podcasts and other people's podcasts. So I had a one-on-one cult experience relationship with my mother, who was a uh, narcissist, then also a spousal one-on-one cult experience, who was also a narcissist. I was drawn into um, a religious cult that was a five-fold ministry ministry. Pentecostal charismatic into healing deliverance. And then I more recently became a volunteer for a commercial hiking company. And I now re- realize, particularly as I left them, but more so when I was there as well, is that they use card-like practices within the organization. And the spousal abuse is ongoing because I'm experiencing from one of my daughters parental alienation. um, And these are adult children or young women. So it goes on. (laughs) Do you want me to tell you a bit about my professional career or?
0: Yeah, I think that would be very interesting. And then we will go back to where this all began. Yes. Okay. So
1: I qualified to be a teacher back in the 1970s. So I did an undergraduate degree, which is a Bachelor of Education. And that gave me qualified teacher status. I specialised in middle years. um, So that's nine years to 13, 14 years with a specialism in modern languages, um, which was French. So I'm a modern linguist, actually. I love languages. I speak several languages. So I speak French, Spanish, some German, some Catalan, some Arabic, because I lived in, in Saudi Arabia for a number of years. So um, while I was doing my ad- undergraduate degree, um, I was an exchange student at UMass in Massachusetts, uh, which was a most amazing experience, as you can imagine, for a 20-year-old. I've got two graduate degrees. Uh, one of my da- graduate degrees is teaching English speakers of other languages from the University of London. And my other one is, an, is uh, an MA in ed in special educational needs in mainstream settings. And that's from the University of the West of England in Bristol. So as I said, I taught abroad for 17 years. Years in international uh, schools, uh, national schools, direct teaching of English. Uh, that was in France, Spain, and Saudi Arabia. And I've i spent time working on summer camps in the US as well. The latter part, probably, of my career, apart from teaching modern languages, I worked in alternative settings. I was on a team called the Education the School Service, uh, where I worked with young people who were out of school for a variety of reasons, sometimes um, illness, um, anxiety. That is probably one of the most rewarding parts of my career, I have to say. And that was all settings. It was primary school, middle school, secondary schools and, and beyond. And I also worked with looked after children. That included unaccompanied asylum seekers, which was quite interesting. Now I'm an examiner for two exam boards, one part of that role is examining, it's called CELT, Secure English Language Test. So I examine the level of English for of people who want to get British nationality or residency. So in one session, I can work with people from
0: 22 different nations. There is something very interesting about that list of things, because when you're helping people in so many different ways, Uh, it's it's a lovely thing to kind of get out of your head also to be able to be there. I'm sure even with people who are seeking asylum, who don't have their parents with them, that's going to be fraught with so much emotion and fear of the unknown and just really needing to be present for other people while still doing things that you enjoy and finding work where you can be outdoors. And it says a lot about... How you survive and how you survive emotionally, physiologically, uh, and find joy, even with all that you've experienced. And so I think that's going to be part of the running theme for you here and the stories that you've shared with me that hopefully you'll be sharing as well today about finding some freedom or finding some fun or finding a way to kind of push the walls out a bit of your life and not deal with the confines that you were in. I want to just have you describe, you mentioned parental alienation and there's going to be, there are going to be some people listening who might not know what that is. And I'm sorry that you're experiencing that with one of your adult children. Can you describe a little bit about how that comes about? It's a difficult one
1: because um, when you're in an abusive relationship and it ends, it. Ends. It's not the end. You physically walk away from it, but there's still a lot of fallout from it. And uh, one of the tactics of an abusive uh, partner is to, I almost use the word groom, actually, friends and family, um, which happened to me. So my ex-husband actually coerced my mother, who was already a fairly difficult woman anyway. So in that sense, I experienced parental alienation myself from, from her so what happened is i found out after she died she disinherited me and she left him a lot of her money uh, and also to my two daughters which when we got subsequently got divorced he refused to share with me so that's kind of my experience of, of, of parental alienation my mother was very ill she had motor neuron design, disease and it was quite a complex situation but also ongoing now with my adult daughters i mean one of my daughters is fairly good at keeping in contact with me and will come and stay but my other daughter it's been very very difficult to to be able to sort of communicate with her i mean part of that is her role because she lives abroad but she was living back in the uk as well and it was never easy for me to to make contact with her what's happened more recently um because uh, we've got a family wedding coming up so my daughter eldest daughter and her fiance were talking about it. And they were telling me who I should go to the wedding with. And I said, well, I I want to decide, you know, I want to decide who I go with. And I said, basically, is I need somebody there who'd watch my back because my ex-husband will be there. And then, of course, the whole thing about his abuse of me came out. And I said, since then, I haven't heard from my youngest daughter. So obviously there's been a conversation. So she's, she's me off really. Yeah. Which is hard.
0: Yeah. Very hard. Oh, I'm so sorry. And when you say that the, there was a conversation about the abuse, in what way did that come about or do you, are you assuming it came about?
1: Because I was, I, I didn't like the fact that they were telling me who I was going to go to the wedding with. And I said, and perhaps I shouldn't, well, no, I can't condemn myself. Is I said, I need someone to watch my back, you know, when I'm there. It's going to be very hard for me because a lot of, because he comes from a large Irish family and a lot of them will be there. And my Soon to be son-in-law comes from a large family, and they're inviting all these people. And because I come from a fairly small family, my brother's dead. I had a sister who who who, who died, and then my parents. <laughs> anyway, so and I also have um, my my dad's family, and that's kind of part of the history of my family in terms of what happened before I was born. They immigrated to New Zealand, so I've got family in New Zealand, but I don't see them because it's it's a long it's a long way to go. So I've got no one there, basically. So they they were a bit confused. Why do you want somebody to watch your back? And then I said, well, because your father, I said to my daughter, was abusive, psychologically abusive. And it's the first time I've said that. I haven't said it before.
0: You don't know how things are going to play out here, I suppose, because when a child has been convinced that y- you are the one who, you know, she needs to stay away from. And suddenly the narrative changes and information is disclosed. It might be something that she can't quite take in or can't quite take in yet and is trying to figure out how to synthesize. Another aspect of that parental
1: alienation is they they will never contact me and ask me how I am. It always has to be me that makes that contact. And even actually one of my daughters said to me one day, "Oh, she said, I've just been on the phone to deserve the name that they call my their, their father. I just was you know catching up to see how he was. And I thought, we, you never do that with me.
0: That's the other thing that I've noticed in these situations with a parent who is very good at orchestrating a relationship that feels more important, that feels more connected. They're catered to more. And the one who has been at the brunt of all of this and has been pushed away, cast aside, they're not Catered to, and they're often ignored, and so it's a situation of uh, adding insult to injury, kind of over and over. And I think that's also been what's happened in your life: adding insult to injury. You know, already being an injured person, and then being hurt on top of it, or taken advantage of. And I'm so glad that you're in the place that you are right now in your life, where you're not going to be treated this way again, voluntarily.
1: But having said that, you see, because um, I said I was in a, in a it was called a five-fold ministry Pentecostal charismatic Christian cult actually based in Australia. And I w- walked away from them physically over 10 years ago, but I had no way of sorting out what happened. I was listening to um, a, a radio program actually on BBC Radio 4, and there was a, a person on it called Richard Turner who had recently completed the MSc in psychology of Cursive control from Salford University, which I'm going to be doing actually in in, in September. Um, And he's a counsellor. And I thought, and he started talking about being in a cult. So I contacted him and then he was, he became my, my therapist. And here was somebody at last who understood Because I'd had gone through specialist counselling for domestic abuse, uh, which was provided by our National Health Service. um, And then I paid for more privately. But it never hit the spot because the domestic abuse was entwined with my cult experiences, um, the religious cult experiences. And it's that cult experience, that religious cult experience, is the one that the family... Uh, so when I spoke to my daughter about her father abusing me, she immediately came back. But you were in a cult. You were in a religious cult. So that's that's what they're using as uh, the weapon, I
0: guess, uh, against me. Yeah. Wow. Adding insult to injury, it happens quite often that people who are unkind to others who really misuse their power over somebody, if that person uh, has a hard time with how they're being mistreated, the abuser or the controller, the manipulator will often jump to another event in that person's life as being the source of the problem. So they get bypassed because they have this convenient way of blaming this other thing for your unhappiness. And it it happens quite a bit that people will be mistreated and then suddenly think, well, it must be because my mother did such and such to me when I was young or, you know, it must be because of something else or because I have an anxiety disorder or some whatever they've diagnosed me with. But it's always, you know, it's a deflection over and over again.
1: Sure. I remember my ex-husband actually saying to me, you're not well, Sue. Or because of what happened to you as a child, and that then sort of fed into my experiences uh, as an adult, that's almost an excuse that there's something wrong with me Whereas in fact, what we should be looking at is the groups, you know, what they did and the impact that um, that had on us as a family, really.
0: Right. And I think also for people listening to know that often this is a deflection and it is a it's a redirection. It will always be because of something that you experienced or are experiencing or feeling or went through. Very often when people mistreat you in this way, it's because of something, it's an issue they have or something they experience, but that's not on the table for discussion. It's interesting
1: actually, because people have a choice, don't they? Ultimately, as to whether they're kind or unkind. And what I haven't explained is a lot of my life, there's been a backdrop of a lot of political issues and warlike situations that that I've lived through or that members of my family have come out of. So, for example, both my parents were deeply impacted by the Second World War. So my generation is kind of like, was very close, obviously, to what happened to them. My mum grew up in London. She was what was known as evacuated. So she was sent away from London at the beginning, 1939, which is when um, the UK declared war on Germany. Um, She was evacuated away from London. And what happened, not until... Nearly two years later, there was what was called the London Blitz, which is uh, kind of like lightning. And for 56 days, bombs were dropped constantly on London. And she lost five members of her family. Five members of her family were killed in the bombings. So she experienced that trauma of separation from her parents, this trauma of, um, of that. She ended up being the narcissist. She ended up being unkind to me as a child and manipulating me. Whereas my dad had an interesting life in that... When he was seven years old, my grandfather worked for the BBC and was sent to East Africa and went to live in East Africa and left him and his two sisters behind to be looked after by by family members. So he didn't see his parents for, for a number of years. The town that he lived in, which is called, City was called Plymouth, which is obviously where the um, Pilgrim Fathers sailed from in, in the South. Um, and that was, that was hit hard by German bombers because it was a port. So he had that as a child. Then when he was... 14. But then, when he was 21, because of what happened in the Second World War, his family decided to immigrate. And in 1947, 48, they all went off to New Zealand and left him behind. But he was never. Uh, he wasn't a narcissist. He was kind. Okay. He was, he was a really loving father. However, unfortunately he died when he was 59 and he died of a, of a heart attack. And I often wonder whether, you know, we often talk about the physical impact of trauma on us. And he has such multiple traumatic experiences in significant times in his life. He was a nice guy, but my mum was the narcissist. So you, you make a choice, don't you? So it's, it's interesting how that then impacts on, on the next generation.
0: Yeah. You know, you have that even within the same family system, you might have a sibling who responds to the same trauma and drama and fear and Mm -hmm. um, unrest in a very different way than the next one. And sometimes it has to do with someone's wiring coming into it. But yeah, it is a choice when you start to see the impact that it's having on the people you love that's when i think you know all bets are off in terms of giving someone an absolute pass because of their past
1: yeah yeah and you know i, I as a child i you know because it's, it's i think the expression is it's unidirectional isn't it the relationship that mother has with the child so you have no comeback i had some interesting experiences as a child i was hospitalized a lot and I often wonder whether that was uh, what was called. I think it's a different expression—a Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So she got her kicks, as it was, out of me being hospitalised. And hospitalisation at that time was—you know—there were there were very strict visiting times when parents could visit and when they couldn't. So you were very much um, sort of isolated within the hospital. And the hospital that I went to was a really well-known one in central London which, you know, people come from all over the world to go there. And in fact, it's a national health hospital, but it also gets a lot of funding on the royalties of uh, Peter Pan, which uh, J.M. Barry wrote. So he gave his royalties, as it were, to the hospital. But I have seen... Such of memories are one. I wasn't allowed to wear my own clothes. I had to wear hospital clothing, so it's kind of like taking my identity away from me. Um, I was actually physically abused by doctors, uh, and my mother allowed a doctor to use me as a medical example in front of students. I can still remember that going into a, into a room, and there are all these student doctors watching me. And unfortunately, I wasn't wearing any underwear, and he pulled up my gown and re- revealed my genitalia, you know, to the, these doctors, and I nobody asked me permission. And I can remember sitting in bed and opposite the hospital because it's right in central London, there was a big apartment block and wondering what all the people were doing inside the apartments to thinking, oh gosh, I'd really like, like to be there. Yeah. So, you know, my mother allowed that to happen, you know, because she got a kick, I think, out of the fact that I was uh, an example that could be used. And I can remember a few times they didn't come to visit me, you know, so there'd be an evening where I had no visitors. And uh, that, that was very traumatic, you know, because you're in a hospital ward and there's lots of things going on. And there was a, a child actually in the bed behind me who died. And of course, I didn't have any parental support. And I can still remember that very clearly.
0: My goodness. From what age to what age were all these hospitalizations? I first started going to hospital. I was about six until I
1: was, I guess I reached puberty, actually. Then they told me I was okay. I mean, they said I had a kidney condition, which I had uh, uh, kidney infections, and I didn't have any surgery or anything. They just sort of kept, they they put me on antibiotics and kept me coming into hospital. And the visits used to be three weeks a time, which was horrendous, you know, um, that I'd be, be in hospital. So, yeah, so if I look back on it, it's very strange that um, that, that happened to me because I... One of the other things that happened is that um, I've got blonde hair and blue eyes, as my brother did. So um, I was a child model. <laughs> so my mother had me modelling. So I, I was, I was kind of like I was used by her. I don't know if I, if it's like human trafficking. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what an expression would be. So I used to appear on national newspapers as, as a child model and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. But, but then when I reached adolescence, um, it didn't stop because there was a neighbor who um, she called my boyfriend. It's a grown man, you know, who had children himself. And she used to allow him to take me for rides in his car and he'd go shopping for his own clothes and uh, so it kind of like carried on but in in a different um in a different arena coming back to the hospital um i, I was a kid you know so I, I found ways of escaping so i used to go exploring going off all around the hospital so they had to come and find me it was one of the first hospitals i think in in the uk that developed school um hospital schools and in fact it, it was a forerunner there in a lot of major teaching hospitals in the uk now so they used to come to my bed and do lessons with me. And I remember lying to the teacher what I was doing in maths and telling it was something a lot easier. So I could just do it really quickly and then run off.
0: Any other thoughts from your time in the hospital? I mean, with, I don't know how often you just didn't feel well or if you were sort of feeling fine and wondering why you were there. Yeah, I was feeling fine and wondering why I was there. <laughs>
1: And it was a time when they were changing over from using, you know, because I had to have these penicillin injections. They used these metal syringes, but they changed them over to plastic. And uh, this is a memory. So I would collect them and they were different sizes. So I had a family of them on my on my bedside table, you know, and they would all be in front of me and I'd talk to them.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, right. It shows the power of play, of creativity, of... It is such a it's such a sad picture that, you know, you were playing with the syringes to be part of this fantasy play, like kids who have nothing, but they'll find sticks or leaves or something that will represent something else, which again, shows the power of the need of that and how nice it is to go away in your mind. Within a lot of cultic groups, actually, one of the things that I've heard time and time again is that cult leaders will often put children down or be abusive towards them or demonize them for imagining or drawing things that are not um, part of the rules of the group. You know, I I one time worked with a, a number of kids who had just come off a compound and I handed them paper and crayons and other things that they could use just while I'm sitting there and I'm trying to assess the situation with their parents and what they might need. They all drew the exact same thing. They were only allowed to draw either the a picture of the leader or a demon. And I don't know why it was sort of this pendulum swing to different extremes, but that was it. No one could draw anything else because there was this sense that you can't, you know, your imagination is who you are. And that is quite threatening. I'm wondering also with all of these hospitalizations, was anyone suspicious of your mother or anything else? Or was it sort of too young for that, for the whole idea of Munchausen? In a sense, she got
1: kudos for doing it because I was the consultant, pediatrician, actually, who was my consultant, he had connections with the royal family. Um, so it was there was huge kudos in terms of me being um, his patient. And I think at the time, you know, part of the British psyche was to be very bowed to to people who were knights of the realm or uh, positions of, of authority. And that included people in the medical, medical profession that they, you know, that whatever they said was correct. So I don't think they made the connection. It's changed obviously now, but um, it, there still is an element of vulnerability because there are still people in the in in the hospital system who who kind of lauded <laughs> it over people. It's interesting actually because coming back to the whole sort of um, New Zealand situation. So my dad, his whole family immigrated to New Zealand, so he didn't have any immediate family. Uh, which must have been incredibly traumatic for him. But he did meet up with a friend of his who he'd been to university with, and this friend married a New Zealand lady, and they became very good friends. They're almost like of family. And I can remember her being quite different. She was just lovely with me. She was a nurse, actually. I wonder whether she s- suspected suspected something. But there weren't words at the time, you see, to to explain it. You know.
0: Right. Oh, it's an incredible thing. Well, I don't always agree with all the diagnoses uh, and the fact that people are sometimes given diagnoses to think before they need to, or really it's a situational diagnosis, but it comes across like a permanent condition, but it's in reaction to a situation that they've been in. I do think that the the bonus is exactly this, that you get to have words to describe what is going on for you internally or what's happening to you externally in this kind of situation. Okay. So you were finally out of hospital and not having to deal with, you know, three weeks at a time here and there and throughout your life and going into adolescence. And I'm, I'm wondering how that was just enjoying being able to, I mean, no wonder you like to go hiking, right? Like you get to use your the strength of your body out in nature without walls around you.
1: Well, I tell you what's really interesting, because both both my parents, because of their experiences during the Second World War, they had very restricted childhoods. It was almost like my generation benefited from that in that our parents used to let us just go off. And I used to, with my brother, we'd sort of go off at, you know, particularly during the summer holidays, We'd just go off on our bikes, and we'd come back when it was time to eat in the evening. And there was no mobile phones, and we'd just go off, and we we really got into building camps and building dens, and and that was very creative. And I talked to a lot of people of my age; they had the similar experience, you know. And I think we used to climb trees and you know walk on ice and fall through the ice. I mean, I did all all that sort of stuff. And I was I was I was what was known as a tomboy, you know. I was permanently in. Scruffy jeans and Wellington boots, and uh, I got these photographs of me with my brother. And we just used to just go off into into the woods, you know, when there when there were woods around, and just uh, and so that creative side of it, I think, uh, probably was uh, kept a balance. But when I became an adolescent, um, so I'd had this sort of experience with um, this this man who my mum said was was my boyfriend, and I guess I was beginning to sort of feel that. I was different from some of my contemporaries because of what had happened to me, because of him. And I had the amazing experience when I was 13 of doing what was called a school exchange. So we used to do these exchanges. So I went to Germany for three weeks and the German youngster came and stayed with us for three weeks. And that I found very difficult because it was the first time I was away from home since I'd been hospitalized a lot. And I was incredibly homesick and cried a lot. And they didn't what to do with me. I can just remember the German word Heimweh, which means homesickness. And I was the one with the, with the homesickness. So I, I was quite happy to, to return back from, from that experience. However, the following year, I did another school exchange and I went to France and the family were just amazing. And again, I was a bit homesick, but the, the mother of the family, just she just held me and hugged me um, and she was just gave me unconditional love that I'd never experienced before from, from a mum, Um, and it's, it makes me world up actually when I think about it. And because of that, I, I built up a really strong connection with, with French and France. They, they lived in the mountains. They took me skiing. They put me on a pair of skis and I started climbing up the mountains. I wanted to go up the top of the mountains, uh, and, and explore. And they, they were hunters. They, they hiked a lot in the mountains, and I stayed with that family for three weeks. And I didn't speak any English for three weeks. So at the end of that, even though I wasn't fluent, I knew I could speak another language and I knew it was something that you connect, you use to connect with people. And that that was poor. I mean, I became a teacher of French, you know, so so, so it altered my life. But then I became addicted to travel in many ways. It's been been my way of getting away. So that's the 17 years living out of the UK. So once I qualified to teach, um, I lived out of the UK for 17 years.
0: Right. Right. Incredible. So I think about this this uh, French mum that you had, your uh, maman. How lovely to just be held. And there doesn't have to even be a lot of conversation around it, but just feeling that you have this uh, that you have arms enveloping you. That's just a lovely, very reassuring, very safe and i and I
1: knew that it was real, not like my mom. So if my mom did that, there'd be payback. There'd be sort of something different. So I never felt it was um it was unconditional love, you know, but with this lady, I call her my French mom. I mean, she died some years ago, but um, um, they, they were just such a lovely family.
0: So explain, if you can, what you mean when you say you're, you're with your own mom, it would have been there was going to be payback. How would that scene have evolved? I mean,
1: I used to be hit. You know, they used to use the wooden spoon. So they used to hit me. That was when I was a younger child. The payback was quite obvious, I guess, when I was younger. But then it became more subtle. So it was more psych- psychological in terms of, Um, I used to have a a job to make a little bit of money so I could buy things for myself. Um, And I can remember saving up enough money to buy a really nice pair of leather boots. And it took me months to to do that. And I remember buying them. And the next thing is, the next day, she's got exactly the same boots. So it's those little sort of subtle things that, um, I mean, as I went on and I had my own children and just her parenting of me once I had my own children, it was kind of like, she wanted to be centre stage and she'd um, tell me how to nurse, breastfeed my, my children and that I wasn't doing it right and I was creating problems for myself. She had an expression, it's there a rod for your back. Again, as as, as an adult, when I got married, um, she really wanted to be centre stage and got quite stroppy uh, towards the end of the wedding because because I wasn't thanking her effusively for, for all that she'd done. And um, it was from sort of Me being a child model and being used by the doctors in the hospital, it became more subtle.
0: Interesting. You know, when you talk about your wedding um, and that she was upset that she wasn't uh, thanked enough, one of the things that I will tell people about when they want to know if they're with someone who might have manipulative or narcissistic traits or both is how they are during events events where either they are the main attraction or they're not uh, and then need to become the main attraction. Um, If they are the main attraction, there's some drama, there's something where they've been slighted or someone hasn't paid them enough attention as the main attraction. But if it is someone else's wedding, someone else's funeral, someone else's anything, they will often have so many needs and need to pull your focus away from the person who could be getting the spotlight and then you uh, need to be solicitous towards them and take care of them or whatever it is oh yeah when my dad
1: died because he was only 59 when he died um my ex-husband and i were teaching in the middle east at the time so we had to come back um and they'd actually retired to the island of majorca which is one of the balearic balearic islands and um Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, obviously he was young and she'd seen him die, but it was kind of like, it didn't matter how I felt. You know, it was kind of like, I had to focus on, 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 on her. But what was lovely is that my, uh, New Zealand godmother, who was a New Zealand nurse, she was there. She was actually there when my dad died and tried to save him. So she tried to, um, do CPR and wasn't able to because it was a sudden heart attack. But she she was unconditional. She came up to me and she sort of asked me how it was. And um, but you, you you can see sort of how these relationships and experiences meant that I was looking for a, tri- a tribe and I was looking for acceptance. So that's what drew me in to the cult, the religious cult that I went into. But also I was vulnerable to my uh, ex husband because um well he, he 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 was as well actually so our marriage was not on healthy foundations really because we were looking for a uh, probably unconditional love that we should have got both of us because he so this is, again, one of the political situations. He he comes from Northern Ireland. We met when we were teaching in Madrid. So we were both teaching in Madrid. So he'd escaped from Northern Ireland because of the troubles in the 1970s. And to put the, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and this might be an insult to Northern Irish people, but basically it's an issue between Catholics and Protestants. The, the British Army went over to Northern Ireland and... I was the enemy because I was British Protestant and their, his family, you know, their son married me, the British Protestant. So they actually stopped talking to him. So he had that trauma him, himself. But then he made the choice subsequently that his relationship with me evolved and evolved and he became extremely abusive, really abusive psychologically um, towards me. And I and I sort of think, well, is that because his parents rejected him? Is he blaming me? Um, they disinherited him. And it's that choice again, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I'm curious how he was abusive towards you psychologically. Because a lot of people listening are dealing with that themselves or they had dealt with it or they have loved ones in these situations now? So I think it would be good if you don't mind describing that, but I really love you coming back around to the word choice. It's really so spot on um, because I think that just before you Get into the details. There are people who are, who will sometimes be resistant to wanting to diagnose someone who has mistreated them, because then somehow it's uh, making it um, allowable, and that you're supposed to have compassion as opposed to being upset about what happened. I think that it, with a lot of things that have to do with human relationships, it's a both and situation. So yes, you can feel compassion. For what they went through, but still, as an adult, uh, how you treat other people in your life is a choice. That is very true. And if you find that you are not being healthy, then you get help for that. If it matters to you, so go ahead. T- tell me, give give us a flavor for your relationship with him.
1: He, as I know, the expression is he love bombed me initially. I mean, totally love bombed me. He used to buy me flowers and uh, write me poems. So, so we met while we were teaching in in Madrid. Then. We came back to the UK and I did a graduate degree at the University of London. But then we went off to live in the Middle East. And I, after being there for two years, I became pregnant, but I couldn't have my child in, in Kingdom. I had to go back to Europe. So she was born in Mallorca, in Spain. And he would send me poems, love poems. And, uh, you know, and I can't wait to see really, you know, but he changed once I mean, he loved his daughter, but his relationship with me was a bit different once he, I had somebody else to look after, as it were. And it, I could feel a subtle change. So even though there'd been a few things before, like, uh, and I remember this actually happened in Hawaii because we'd been to New Zealand and we'd traveled around the world. And we came back via Hawaii into San Francisco, then on to New York. Um, and he completely ignored my birthday. So that's one of the things that he started doing. You know, uh, and I would say, well, it's my birthday. You know, aren't we going to do something? Oh yeah. Oh, it's your birthday. You know, and there were lots of little subtle things like that, and and it 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 started off in a very slow fashion, but it 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 built up. I mean, I I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to say, you know, because then this involvement with the cult. Appeared on the scene. So I almost feel like, well, okay, I deserved what happened to me, but I'm not going to say that because I didn't. It was used almost like an excuse to up the ante in terms of the abuse. One day, and I can remember really clearly, he just decided to stop talking to me and he would walk out of the room and he wouldn't call me by my name. Uh, There was a dear friend of ours that was very ill with cancer and then she died and he didn't tell me. And he told me that, uh, well, it was up to me to find out. So he would withhold information um, from me about different things that were happening. He would like it at, By that stage, my daughters were at university. So if they came home, he'd go off and do things with them. And he wouldn't tell me what they were doing. And they'd go off and they wouldn't invite me. He, When my mother became ill, she became ill with motor neuron disease. And my response, because I was still in the cult at that time or coming out of the cult, Um, is one of the teachings is hell trauma, you know, is if somebody decides to commit suicide, uh, that they go to hell. So she wanted to take herself off to Dignitas, which is a place in Switzerland where you can have assisted suicide. Now she had already tried to commit suicide before when um, one of my daughters was newborn. So, and she pointed her finger at me and blamed it on me and said it's your fault um, so when she said she was going off to dignitas it that brought back all that sort of trauma but he as soon as i said that to her and said that you know it's not a good decision because you know in the christian church because she was in church that means that you go to hell he really went to town on that and and used that as um a way to groom her almost and and they had this buddy buddy relationship so um, she'd lost her son because my brother was only 42 when he died and he'd lost his mum. So it's kind of like they were mother and son. And then um, it, it got the things that happened got bigger and bigger. So one really traumatic thing is that they um, it was it was the last Christmas that she was alive. They decided to organise an event um, and they went to a hotel and they didn't tell me. So they went to a hotel, and my husband, my two daughters and my mum and her then my stepfather and his children nobody told me and I found out actually the night before that they were going and I'd been with them you know for several days and we were sitting around the dinner table talking but it was those sort of really shocking moments when it takes the breath out of you so it's kind of like the the abuse started very subtly but it got um it got more and more obvious and then um mum did die they took over the organization the funeral because they didn't think I was capable of doing it and then my stepfather came around with her will and I discovered that I'd been totally disinherited and I wasn't allowed to have any of her goods um so when it came to bringing some of her stuff around to the house they had to monitor me to make sure that I wasn't taking anything yeah so you can see how it goes you know it gets it builds up
0: you know i do, i don't usually talk to to talk to people about their parents in this way especially people who have passed but the word thief came to mind that I feel like she was involved in such thievery in your life by taking and same, same thing that happens with narcissistic spouses that they just drain you and they take from you, uh, taking away years of your childhood, being able to be free and fun taking from you what should have or could have been yours. Um, and in other situations would have been, and then to another adding insult to injury, to give it to the person who was cruel to you. Totally calculated,
1: you know, and, and I didn't know it was going to happen. And it was like, it was her last shout from the grave. And it was like, I wasn't allowed to have it. It said in her will that I wasn't allowed to have any of her goods and chattels. So what that meant is there's a lot of stuff that belonged to my father uh, and his family were incredibly... Generous in terms of, sort of passing things on and sharing things out. I was in denial in terms of the marriage being in trouble because um of my mind. I guess I can't know how it, it was. Almost like it was hacked. I was just in the situation and couldn't see a way out. But I was having a, a small procedure at a local hospital, and one of the nurses was really lovely to me. She said, "Sue, how are you?" And I knew she was being genuine. And I just broke, just broke in front of her because somebody was really genuinely being kind because I wasn't living that at all. So she spent time with me. She referred me to um, a team then, who I kind of like a safeguarding team. And then they put me in touch with domestic abuse professionals. And that's when I realized that my marriage was over, that my husband was a, a narcissist and I got some special counseling. However, the problem is, is that the counselors didn't know anything about clubs. So I wasn't able to talk about that as being part of... I could talk about my mum and I had a complex relationship with her, but I couldn't talk about the, the cults and how that, that played. But my daughters actually did allow me to have some of the, the family stuff. So, I mean, if you look behind me, I've got a lot of paintings on, on the wall because my grandfather my was a professional cartoonist and I could have not had any of that, but, it, but they did allow me to, to have those things. And I have got... My grandfather's First World War kit box, and I've got lots of wills and things from going way back, and photographs that are well over 100 years old, which I love because I love doing ancestry research. So, um, so I did get it in the end, but um, she didn't want me to have it.
0: I mean, even just using the word allow, that they allowed you to have this, that is from your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you go into this mode when you're in these uh, situations where you feel like you need to feel grateful for scraps for anything. Don't say, oh, please, please, can I, can, you know, it, but it's very hard. And the difficulty is in my professional career,
1: I've always been really assertive. I've been the one that, you know, has laid down the boundaries, et cetera. But in my personal life, it's been, it's been different.
0: Absolutely. There is something about developing that way of being with certain personalities that has been part of your survival. That if you were forceful with people who were going to be cruel to you in response, then you learned, in behavior modification that you get from people, you learn it's not safe to be as forthright. You know, you have to be ready for the response. And most people are not when they're in that situation and when they haven't, they don't have the resolve or they don't have the team, they don't have the backup yet, you know?
1: And I, I was the good kid into my professional life. I was so agreeable and conscientious and and hardworking, you know, uh, so it was almost that that damage that had been done to me. So it went right into my life in, in general. And of course, the same in the two group cults that I was in. And the, the final one that I was involved in, which was not religious, it's a it's a commercial walking company. And I was so agreeable and said, yes, you know, I'll do this for you. And I will do that for you. Working long hours, traveling all
0: over the place, and they didn't pay me. Incredible. Okay, so let's shift. And there's so much more to talk about. But let's shift to these group experiences. So there was the church, right, that you were involved in. Was that your first Group experience, uh,
1: yeah, I guess so. I mean, I'd been in sort of um, denominational churches, likes of. I mean, my upbringing was not was totally atheist. I mean, a- anti church. But um, then, uh, once I had my first child, and I think because of the experience of the link with Catholicism in Northern Ireland, and I, I started being intrigued about faith, and also because I'd been working in the Middle East, I'd been working with Muslim women. I could see the impact of Islam on women, so I started questioning faith. Um, so I went to an Anglican church, then a Methodist church, then a Baptist church. And then I became ill. I got ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was desperate. I mean, my body shut down literally for four years and I was, I wasn't able to get out of the house. And I think a lot of that is, you know, we say that our physical manifestations are are linked to psychological abuse, which I was going through. And it might well have been a manifestation of that. So I was desperate. And then I heard that this Australian ministry were coming to the UK and they were heavily into healing and deliverance. And I was beginning to think, learning about the Holy Spirit and, you know, that that anything that's wrong with you is demonic and it needs to be cast out. And she was into generational sin. So it was related to what the sins of my fathers, and of course that kind of related to my history in a sense. But a, a lot of it actually around Freemasonry. So she was really into Freemasonry and casting out the demons of the masonic curses that are on your life and I went to a meeting and it's suggestibility I don't know but they prayed for me and the ME or the chronic fatigue went so of course I thought this is it this is it you know and I was I was draw, drawn drawn in and I'm still trying to get my head around that I mean there will be sort of a suggestibility there's there's a psychological sort of understanding of that which I need to sort of research probably a bit more
0: People talk about the power of prayer. I don't know if it's a, an energetic sort of thing or if it's placebo. I tend towards the idea of placebo, but I, uh, that's not to say that things don't transform in a, in real time, even with placebo, uh, because it's all just releasing chemicals within your system that are produced by your system, actually, as opposed to from an external source that can help with quite a lot of things. And it also depends upon the fatigue and what was causing it. And if it was about feeling anxious or depressed or hopeless or whatever else, and this gave you a chance to not feel that way. It, so yeah, it has, I often has to do with what, what the root is that's causing the symptoms. And then what are the the chemicals that are released to fight that, that might actually do the trick. But I, I think it's, I, I'm glad you had relief. Okay. So then what, what, what is the experience you had after that? Because that's quite unique with Freemasonry. I mean, that adds another twist. She used to
1: have these manuals and prayer manuals that you'd pray. So I used to she would have these trainings because I say she, because it was a five-fold ministry. So it meant that there was an apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, and pastor. Apart from the pastor, she was the apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher. So she had four or five roles. So it was a woman. And, um, I mean, if I look back on it, I almost laugh, actually, because she looked a bit like uh, Elsa from Frozen in the way that she used to dress. <laughs> um, so she had these training schools in Australia. So I'd go out to Australia every year. But the training schools were never, and uh, they never ended. It was, you know, there was always something new, some new revelation. and And initially they love-bombed me. But then um, she decided that I was a false apostle prophet and she decided that I needed reigning in. And of course, it wasn't her. It was the crowd of the group that did it. It was all the classic cultic tactics, really. So my friends were these people who were involved with the ministry, but they weren't really friends. They used to come to the UK once a year and I used to go out there. And um, it was um, it was weird. Yes, it was weird. And then what happened after this weird thing? Well, uh, I tell you that, and again, this is a classic one, is that I got talking to another woman at the end of one of the training schools. And she was saying, I'm not really feeling that comfortable about this. And I said, I'm not either. So we started talking. And um, when I came back to the UK, we kept in contact. And we both then realized that it was weird and that it was a cult, even though we might not have used that word, but we knew that it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't good. So we then plotted. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, for me to go back to Australia and confront the apostle, prophet, teacher, evangelist. So, um, so this friend of mine arranged for a meeting for her. But I went out and I turned up at the meeting. So the apostle, prophet, evangelist, not uh, whatever she was, her face was an absolute picture. And I confronted her and I said, "What you're doing is terrible. You're taking money from me. Cause I was giving, I was tithing each month. So she called on the, um, uh, the big bods as it were, her sister and her, her husband, and they took me into a room and left me there on my own. And then when they called me out again, my friend had gone, they told her to go. So I was on my own and they took me into a meeting room and they screamed at me. And um, I thought, I'm not staying here. And um, I, I said, where's my friend? They said, oh, she's gone back because you're you're wrecking the lives of some of our sheep, you know. And I walked down the road. And the next thing is this car came down. And it was her husband and another guy. And they encouraged me to get into the car, which I did. And then they drove and they dropped me off at a, of a, a motel in, <laughs> not quite in the middle of nowhere, but it wasn't near the city. It was just outside of Melbourne. And I was just dropped off. And I had no passport, I had no clothing or anything. I had the telephone number of another friend who'd left the cult as well. And I rang her and she said, I'm coming, I'm coming to get you. But in the meantime, the sister of the Apostle Prophet Evangelist teacher came and dropped off my clothes and my screamed at me again and dropped off my passport. I mean, what she did, they, that was totally legal, what they did. And I stayed in Australia because I had to stay because my flight back was about another six days. But this lovely woman who took me in I was from Mauritius because there's a big community of Mauritius people from Mauritius in in Australia and um, and they just looked after me again, just loved me. I mean, it was wow, it was just amazing. Took care of me basically and took me to the airport and put me on the airplane and I came back to the UK. Shocked, <laughs> totally
0: shocked. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, a couple things. First, how important it is that you connect with other people and share with people. And there's something really very telling, I think, in many groups and in many relationships where you're told not to talk to people, right? And not to share what's happening and how you really feel because this might happen that... Right, that that's really a threat to someone trying to sequester you, trying to isolate you, trying to make you feel that your feelings are different from everyone else's and wrong and bad. Mm, Turns out that most people are in the majority when they're having questions and concerns and feeling discomfort. Um, And I think controllers know that, and they just don't want you to connect because then you might plot. And thinking about these people being religious leaders and just screaming their heads off at you, which is not really a very spiritual picture, is it? So there's that. And also, I have been mentioning on the podcast that I have a lot of listeners in Mauritius. Yes, you
1: said that. And that's why I wanted to say mention it. So it was in Melbourne. There's a large Mauritian population. Yeah, so they're the big community. So they took me in and looked after me. And they are French speakers. So I was speaking to them in French, which was just lovely because that was really healing for me as well. But they had been taken in. There were quite a few Mauritians in this ministry, but they left
0: goodness. All right. So then I know we're, we're um, having limited time. And so we might need to have you come back to tell more, but I do want you to be able to talk about the company that you worked for and whether you want to name it or not is up to you, but just the nature of how you were treated and mistreated because people still don't know to look for this in non-religious settings. And I, so it's an important thing if you, yeah, if you can talk about that for a moment.
1: So I was vulnerable because my marriage was breaking down big time and um, I just wanted to get away. I love hiking and a friend of mine had talked to me about this particular hiking company and she said that they have walk leaders. I think she might've said they were volunteers. I can't remember. So I applied to become a walk leader. I became a walk leader. And they have in the UK, they've got 16 country house hotels, and this will probably identify them now if anybody's in in the UK, in in well-known areas where people hike. And it meant that I went away quite a bit. And I'd be working with wealthy people in these country house hotels, leading them on walks each day. And I'd be away for a week or sometimes two weeks. And so I got away from home. So that was the draw. OK, but they use cult-like tactics in that they talked about having a, a love for the company and, you know, supporting their ethos. And I don't know what the ethos was, actually, but it was kind of this sort of uh, ethos. And um, they kind of said, well, if you are if you do this, you're this type of leader. But if you give us a little bit more, you're this type of leader. And the top of the rung of the leaders are the ones who lead abroad and they lead worldwide. And of course, I that appealed to me. You know, they very quickly discovered that I was a modern linguist and they had me. Me assessing other leaders' language skills. Um, and they didn't pay me for it. <laughs> they had me doing workshops teaching languages, Spanish and Catalan, because I speak some Catalan. Uh, and I remember that at the conference, they asked if I'd do a workshop. And I said, Oh, yes, 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 I do a workshop. And they had other people at this conference and talking about birds or talking about rocks or whatever. And they all got paid,
0: but I didn't. But they gave me a bottle of beer and a packet of biscuits. For <laughs> Right. Here you go. This and this. That's that's sufficient. But I
1: started going abroad with them. So I led all over the place, all over Europe into various countries, you know, from France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, Cyprus, Malta, and in Jordan as well. So because I speak some Arabic and I'd lived in the Middle East, but... It is such hard work because I was having to deal with all the the flights and the arrivals and the hotel, as well as, as speaking to local people
0: and organizing buses and leading, and it was all for free. Didn't get anything, absolutely nothing. So for a bottle of beer and biscuits, you were working nonstop, right? And I and all of the details too, the meals, the, all of it. You know, uh, health issues, whatever comes up, I had to deal with all of that. All of that. Yeah. Okay. And it's kind of like, they so say you're getting a free holiday. So, no, I'm not.
1: I'm not a holiday? A, I'm not getting a free holiday. And it was only probably last year or, or even before that, I had a couple of guests said to me, I don't believe you don't get paid for this. You know, and they said you know, we pay a lot of money. So why aren't you paid? Where's Where's the money going? By then, I started working for an American company where I work as a walk leader and also as a, a group leader. And they pay me and they pay me very well. And um, one of the things that we really like, us Brits and, and Americans come over, we get tips, you see, because we don't very much in the UK. And in the other, in the walking company, we were encouraged not to take tips. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to have tips. No, we don't do that. But I'm quite happy to take tips, you know, now. And, and it was kind of like being in that contrasting situation and realizing this is what I'm worth. This is what I can earn on a daily basis, you know. And then I saw the lights and then I walked away.
0: You know, one of the things that you're highlighting too is when somebody else defines what you are somehow getting or living, uh, like when they say that you're getting, you know, paid holiday. Meanwhile, you're sweating and you're running and you're not sitting really at all. I'm sure you're on this phone, that phone. So if they can call it a holiday, then you are being gifted something according to them. And so they don't have to pay you on top of it. You then might even feel like you feel indebted or that you owe them, you know? And so it would be wrong of you, right? To ask like people who are told that they're being saved or that they're, they're like, they're specially chosen. You know, it's, it's happened a lot. Um, with people who have talked about, you know, the Jewish people being the chosen people. And there are a lot of Jews who will say, I'm sorry, chosen for what exactly? (laughs) Like if we're, okay, no, Um, we're not sitting here, you know, with our arms folded, feeling like we're basking in the glory of being Jewish on this earth, right? Like it has been a really tough go. So I think that when somebody else starts to use that kind of language, and it doesn't at all match your experience, know that there is some reason they have to have you see it a different way so that you won't stand up for yourself or you won't do what you need to do to protect yourself. And I walked away from them this year. After how many years? I think it was six years. A
1: lot of it was because I was getting this specialist support, you see, into um, cults and uh, cult-like behavior. So education is so important.
0: So important. I think about this video that I have on my website. This says, you know, why did I stay? It's sort of to answer that question. Most people in life have these moments in their lives where afterwards they ask themselves that question, why did I stay? And there's so many reasons and they're all valid, but it's usually more than one reason, but it's very important to see as we're talking about the chronology, the conditioning First of all, really wanting to do the work that you were doing. So feeling happy and it's it's like it leaves you kind of buoyant, like you get to kind of float above the memory of being sort of stuck in a hospital room or in a marriage that you know that's so unpleasant day in and day out. You get to be free. So you might feel like you're gonna just tolerate not getting other things because you're receiving something that you haven't gotten before. But I think not speaking up and not feeling like you can ask and that you can expect or that you deserve. That takes some doing to develop that, to develop all of that. It's interesting from being paid from this travel company in the States. I'm so happy to hear that something happening in the United States went well. <laughs> That's really good. I'll take I'll take any of that. And that they were generous and kind and, you know, you got tips. It reminds me of the, your French surrogate mother who offered you something and you got to feel something. And then there was this juxtaposition like, oh, this is what it could feel like, right? This is maybe what it's supposed to feel like. And what is that? What am I enduring that maybe I don't have to? Interesting.
1: I oh, well put actually, that's that's good.
0: Yeah. I know we just have a, a few moments. What would you like to leave us with? I mean, just with how your life is now or other kind of takeaway lessons from, from this?
1: I was reading, um, so Jilly Jenkins has just brought out a really good book on uh, a workbook. And one of the things that she said is, it's like when you're in a cult, it's like you're a piece in a puzzle and it's a, a grey and black puzzle. And you're a colourful piece of that, puzzle, that that puzzle. And because of the psychosocial social education and listening to podcasts like yours and other others, so that bit of puzzle has been taken out, is now being put firmly into a colourful, puzzle, which is, which is, which is my life, you know, with culture and cinema and art and uh, music and good food. You know, and, um, but having said that, I mean, it, it's, there's still a lot to work through because there's I mean, I only discovered a year and a half ago that there was special support. So you can imagine there's a lot there too, but um, is to get the, the support really, and especially support, you know, it can't be a counsellor who's doesn't understand or the therapist doesn't understand cult.
0: Very true. okay. I'm so happy that also you're going to be going on to study this and and uh, being able to to learn more to to do more. Your life has been just fascinating so far and there's much more to come. But I also really love the idea of you being a linguist and about it being, as you mentioned before about connection how you connect with people connect with the world and to go from isolated living to being in connection is really quite a powerful transformation that you that you've gifted yourself with with a lot of work to get there
1: yeah oh i love i love languages i love making connections
0: yeah 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 and and having the language to describe also what, you know, that kind of language too the diagnostic language, the language of control manipulation and saying, this is what happened to me. It's also so important. So thank you. Thank you for reliving some of these much less than pleasant memories for for us, for the listeners, and also just having such an interesting way of tying things together and And in that, I hope that people hear and and I liked how you kind of switch some of your language as you were talking, that they hear that you don't want to blame yourself in this, that you're a product of your experiences and that your experiences sometimes guide your hand in the decisions that you make that turned out to not necessarily be the healthy ones, but it's still not your fault. So thank you. Thank you so much for everything today. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much, Sue, for speaking with us. It is really important for you to be highlighting the things that you're highlighting, uh, which I'll get to in a sec. But first, I'm sure you all agree that when you hear a story like Sue's, you think, How did somebody get to this point in their life after being put through so much in a repeated fashion from a home life with a narcissistic parent to a narcissistic partner, dealing with parental alienation, dealing with a Bible base called uh, a workplace called, etc., etc.? How do you feel hopeful? How do you feel hopeful that your life is ever going to feel different, that you're going to be able to find a place where you're treated well, where you're treated respectfully, where your boundaries are not crossed, where you get to take care of yourself, too, and not just be in service to other people at your own expense? Truth is that when you go from out of the frying pan into the fire and then into another frying pan and into another fire you might not actually be aware that life can feel different than this. You might not be aware until you see it, until you sense it in a healthier environment with healthier people. But you're going to be drawn, as we all are, towards things that feel familiar. What is known is comforting to us, whether it's healthy or not. And so the familiar becomes the draw more than What's healthy a lot of the time? It's like the expression where people say, Oh, I married my mother or I married my father for better or for worse reasons. But I knew that personality and I knew how to interact with that personality. And it felt like coming home, whether home was a happy place or not. And so for Sue, she needed to be able to break free from so many of the people who were using her for their benefit. Even dealing with being made to be ill and having an illness that was so protracted and repeated, and then being this sort of shining example, shining star for this doctor in England who could sort of use Sue and her illness for his own reputational career, and her mom could use her to be seen as this wonderful champion of a mother for her sick child. Finally, now, Sue gets to say, hang on, I want to actually not be used. I don't want to be pushed. I don't want to be pulled. I don't want to be sequestered like how she was feeling with her family. I want to stand in my own shoes and I want to address what I need, have my own thoughts and feelings, have my own strengths and develop a sense of what I deserve in this life from other people and from myself. That's a very new philosophy for people raised like Sue and dealing with, again, being used, being pushed, being pushed to the brink, being not only used, but taken advantage of and abused over and over. When we deal also with these repeated stories of one thing after the other, after the other, they're very important because. They help us move away from the trappings that might make something seem like a cult, and we get right to the heart of it. Because the trappings, the environment, the players can all be so different from each other. But the nature of the relationship between the person in charge and their subordinate, who they deem as their subordinate, who they deem as someone who is really there for them only, and their responsibility is not to give to them, but just they're there to receive from their subordinate. That in these situations, you get to see the nature, again, of that relationship of the manipulation. And so it helps teach us what to watch out for. And then we're not limited by our mind's eye, by looking for robes or looking for it in a um, church-like building or looking for it at the hands even of a partner because it could happen at the hands of a boss, a coworker. It could happen when suddenly you realize that you're saying yes and you feel like you say yes to a lot of things when other people might not. And you might not hear thank you and you might not get payment for it, but somehow it's your job. It's your job to just keep giving and giving and giving. I would love for all of you to have this sense that at some point you get to actually stop that, even if the person who is pushing you to give more and more and sacrifice more and more for free, usually, is someone who's then going to be upset with you. But let them be upset. And the problem is, though, in those moments, they're going to mischaracterize you. They're going to make it be about you. That you are abandoning the cause, that you don't care, that you're not acting with integrity, that you are somehow not keeping up with your responsibilities, that you're being lazy. But if you're on your 60th hour of work that week, 70th, 80th, 90th, and you still can't pay your bills, you can't ever put your feet up, you don't ever hear thank you, then if when you put your foot down, they turn on you and call you things, just know that that's the way in the past they've gotten away with it. And you don't have to accept that, but you do need to weather the storm a bit and the discomfort that comes with having someone point their fingers at you. So if in those moments you think you're going to fold, you think you're going to say, okay, fine, never mind, never mind. I'll go back to work or I'll just stay with you as my partner and I'll just keep working for you in every way. If you know that you might do that and if you might forget about all of the times that you were taken advantage of and all the things that you did that were more than you were ever told you were going to have to do, whatever it is that really started to bother you, I encourage you to write those things down so you have a list in front of you. People who are conflict avoidant and people who are accommodating and people-pleasing because they've been trained to be are going to forget in that moment about all the things that were wrong and all the ways they were wronged. So really write it down or put it in your phone, have it to refer to before you end up at the end of that conversation, apologizing for bringing it up and just going back to work and going back to being taken advantage of. Be safe out there. And thank you, Sue, for your time and your wisdom. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast and for twitter find us at, at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at indoctrination show at gmail.com and for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination